This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and recommend it to a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Spencer Clavin. He is the author of the new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Spencer is a brilliant young writer who analyzes politics and culture from an interesting perspective, and we touch on a number of different factors as it relates to crises as he see them, sees them within Western civilization. Spencer Clavin, coming up next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Spencer Clavin, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben. So you have a new book uh, that's coming out uh, that you've been working on uh, based around uh, a lot of things I think will be familiar to people who are listeners to your podcast, Young Heretics, uh, and uh, uh, are familiar with some of your other uh, written work called How to Save the West. How do you save the West? (laughs) (laughs) It's an ambitious uh, proposition, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I I kind of, um, I was a little nervous to call the book that because obviously it sounds like I'm offering like the prescription for saving Western civilization. And in some sense I am, but maybe not in the political or, you know, grand design sense that a lot of people uh, are, are looking for. I think that's a cause of a lot of our despair right now is you look at what's going on, you know, in American politics, in the world more generally, you know, wars overseas. And these crises seem so much bigger than any kind of input we could have. I think a lot of people feel extremely powerless and they feel like they've lost ownership over their own civilization, their own country. Um, And so the the reason I wrote this book is that I wanted people to understand that the West as a grand tradition of, you know, the inheritance of Athens and Jerusalem is actually not dependent on your vote going the right way or this particular political battle coming out correctly. Um, because as a matter of fact, these traditions have survived enormous catastrophes, worse than even anything we currently are are fearing, I would say. Um, and so how do you save the West? Well, you become the West. You take these traditions into your home. You take ownership of them. You let nobody talk you out of them. And you let nobody say to you that, oh, you know, those great books, they're kind of musty. They're on a shelf. They're for experts. Um, the reason I wrote the book is I wanted people to understand that, you know, these, these great ideas that come down to us from uh, the traditions of Athens and Jerusalem – 
they're really for you. They're about uh, your concerns. How do I wake up in the morning and live a good life? How do I raise a good family? Um, and I think that, you know, we've kind of lost touch with that because we're thinking in terms of, well, how do I, you know, uh, wrestle the election into the right position or what have you? Um, but a lot of the problems we're up against are actually more primal than that. Um, and so each section of the book deals with something that's in the news a lot, like, say, you know, transgenderism, which is one of the big hot button topics I deal with. Um, but it kind of tries to pull back the camera and say, OK, we're in this era of radical high tech. Um, all these things seem to be happening in our schools that uh, for a lot of people just suddenly, you know, everybody went crazy. Um, what's going on here that's that's deeper than that? And so I take that, you know, into the question of, you know, ancient theories of the body and, and uh, not just transgenderism, but transhumanism. And some of these forces that are rearing their head, you know, they're very ancient. Um, and that means that the answers to them are, are quite ancient, but at the same time can be incorporated into your daily life, right? Get out, do a little exercise. I mean, that's like, sounds like simple advice, um, but it actually comes with the backing of uh, thousands of years worth of, of wisdom. And I think incorporating that wisdom into our own manageable human-sized lives um, is how we begin to take back agency over a question like saving the West. Uh, talk to me about uh, one chapter in particular. You have uh, the war over reality um, yeah. and the way that uh, that's defined in our in our current media conversation tends to be through the lens of conspiracy theories and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but you're talking about something that's quite a bit deeper than that. Uh, tell me what you mean in terms of the war over reality that we're facing here right now. Absolutely. Well, I think the conspiracy theory stuff is like a little ripple on the surface of a really deep current that's going through our civilization right now. And I'm, in the book, I start out with a bunch of kind of news stories that people will probably be familiar with. I talk about, you know, Facebook's transition into meta, you know, becoming this virtual reality company. Um, but I also talk about, you know, the concern over, quote unquote, post-truth politics, which became a buzzword in the media when Donald Trump rose to the fore, but which really was a much older phenomenon that we've been struggling with for as long as I've been alive. I mean, we had the Bush memos that were, quote unquote, fake, but accurate. Uh, we had We've had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about being morally right rather than factually correct. Um, and so what you're seeing in all of these domains is uh, uncertainty about the question of reality. What's real? What counts as real? Um, and in some cases, it's not even an uncertainty so much as a denial that the concept of reality is even useful at all, right? I mean, if we just get rid of that, some people say, we can live in a paradise of imagined uh, virtual reality. We can kind of, you know, push forward to our utopia either by being, you know, morally correct if, if factually wrong or by building some tech machine that's going to, you know, take our brains uh, into a, a perfect headspace. Um, and the reason that that keeps falling apart or keeps looking so dystopian um, is because it's actually going back to one of the deepest questions in Western philosophy. When, when Western philosophy begins with Socrates and his encounters with what he called the sophists, or Plato called the sophists, um, they were arguing over this very question. Is there anything that's real, whether we like it or not? Um, is there anything that just is, uh, and we can't 
change it by just merely willing it away or talking it away? Um, or is the world just a pure imposition of power? And that's what you see now with these language games, right? Oh, men can be women if I just say so, if it's my identity and so forth. Um, this is, again, a very ancient impulse to say there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as Shakespeare's Hamlet says, in his mm. madness. Um, and so the first you know, fifth of the book is devoted to recovering a sense that if we want to have a meaningful life at all, um, we actually can't just live in a world of of pure imagination. Uh, there's got to be something, some bedrock somewhere um, that is the same, whether we, you know, choose to wish it away, whether we invent neologisms to talk it away or not. Um, and really, the whole rest of the book is devoted to exploring, you know, where is that reality that we can hold to as, as all these other things change? How do we navigate a world in which uh, the phrase, my truth, has become so ever present in a sense that, you know, the world revolves around your definition of it, as opposed to having some firm definition. That's a great question. And I talk about the, my truth idea in this reality section, because, you know, obviously conservatives hear that and we immediately know there's something deeply wrong with the idea that you can just declare something to be true and make it true that way. It's a idea that comes to us in, in large part from these, you know, French post-structuralists and from sort of the, this, you know, late, late modern notion of just, you know, there being no stable reality at all. Um, and I think that the answer to this that you'll find in the book is maybe a little counterintuitive because a lot of times conservatives, when they hear something like my truth, uh, they just buckle down and they say, that's complete nonsense. Facts are just facts. Um, they're just, you know, pure objectivity. But one thing we can see in the world is that that extreme doesn't actually work either, because that's kind of the scientific extreme that says there's no such thing that is real except like hard, cold, physical reality. Um, and so I think what we really need is to recover that middle ground, uh, which used to be called subjective and subjective becomes a bad word, you know, from the 19th century onward, because it sounds starts to mean like arbitrary or fanciful or imaginary. Um, but if you actually think about what subjective means, it means it's a true thing about a human subject, right, that there's a person there um, on the other end of the line. And this is what you always deny when you go into, you know, artificial reality or into these fantasies is like, other people are real. And the fact that, you know, light is refracting through the air in the morning is very nice, but unless there's a human subject on the other end, we can't really call it a sunset. We can't say it's beautiful. And so that subjective truth, which is not something you can wish away or make up or, uh, you know, recreate, but actually exists in your mind, right, in your relationship to the world, that's where everything important lives, right? The uh, beauty, memory, desire, love, all of these things we know to be true. Um, and so one thing I'm doing a lot in the book is trying to reconnect people to their sense that that's not an illusion. It's not a fantasy that you're like chemistry set inside of a meat sack bubbled up. Um, it's actually a reality that is deeper in some sense than the scientific reality of like billiard balls, atoms bouncing off of one another. Um, subjective truth in the robust sense, I think, is what we ought to be reclaiming um, to counteract this idea of uh, my truth, which is really just arbitrary truth. And that's something very different altogether. There is a thread of uh, thought that exists uh, among some conservatives uh, and among some on the left 
that essentially functions uh, as an indictment of uh, the Enlightenment era values that flowed into uh, many aspects of the founding of, of America. One that seems to have gained a bit more purchase in recent years. And perhaps it's an oversimplification, but the argument basically goes, well, those values were fine for the country for a certain amount of time, but they depended on a faithful uh, and faith-filled uh, group of people, of communities that were bound to that uh, faith-based knowledge or uh, whose leadership was guided by uh, that type of, uh, you know, uh, worshipfulness. Um, you think back to some of the speeches, for instance, that Calvin Coolidge gave on on this front, where he talks about, um, you know, uh, the that uh, we live in an era of science and the accumulation of knowledge and all these great advancements, uh, but that these will turn into uh, a barren scepter in our hands if we lose sight of the of the altar fires that were guiding, you know, our founders. Um, that's just, you know, one expression of it. But it seems to have really gotten hold of a lot of people's thought processes uh, these days, in part because of, uh, you know, whether it's a critique from someone like Ross Douthat of decadence uh, in in our uh, in day and age, or whether it's a critique from uh, a more, you know, uh, uh, critics would call it authoritarian faith focus or people who want to go in that direction. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that whole phenomenon. Uh, and whether when you were writing this book, uh, an, an aspect of it was to defend the West to the people who have benefited from Western values the most. Mm, yeah, that's a great question. And it was very much on my mind. Absolutely. Um, there's even a more pessimist, pessimistic version of the argument that you just articulated, and that is that Enlightenment uh, liberalism was doomed from the start, that it's an inherently corrosive ideology because it's bound, it's sort of premised on, uh, you know, neutrality or even transgression, right? Everything is permitted um, so long as we, you know, keep certain bounds on. As long as we don't come to blows, we can make any argument that we want. Um, and it's necessarily, therefore, going to always uh, favor arguments that are more kind of uh, anti-traditionalists that, co that, that uh, come up with new ways of transgressing, that question authority, right? Um, and a lot of the bumper stickers that I think I grew up with, at least, are kind of caricatures in this way. Question authority as if that were inherently a good thing, as if you're inherently virtuous for breaking away from the past and so forth. Um, and... You know, Patrick Deneen is somebody that comes up uh, a lot. He wrote that, that book, Why Liberalism Failed. And, and you know, I, I think that there is certainly an element of truth to arguments like that. Um, and and it's it, that element of truth is in some sense why I wrote the book, which is to say it's absolutely true, as Coolidge suggested, that uh, these traditions of open discourse, of freedom, of civility, right? Um, these are like, kind of like jewels in a crown. They, they don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, and they actually can't stand on their own without a like thick cultural backing behind them. Um, and if you take away all of the, you know, cultural assumptions that somebody like John Stuart Mill lived with, or even, you know, go back to Milton, he, he too is kind of making some of these arguments within that context. If you take that away, if you take that faith backing away, um, then liberalism kind of does 
become just an acid bath, right? Becomes this thing that um, teaches you to revile the very thing that gave you everything you have. And that's the, that is undeniably the situation we're in. That's why I wrote the book is just to explain to people, look, you think that you're going to be in this utopia of freedom and bliss and, and civility and tolerance if you just jettison the past with all of its prejudices and superstitions. And a big argument in the book, the opening of the book is, you know, <laughs> the reason that you even think freedom is a good thing or civility is a good thing is because of those prejudiced so-called superstitious, you know, great books from the past. So I think that is a very, a very powerful argument. What I also think is true, though, is that <laughs> we seem to be bouncing back and forth between two options. Either America is this completely deracinated, uh, you know, faith-free neutrality zone where nothing that even smacks of tradition or anything like that is allowed into the public square. Um, or, and this is again a caricature, you know, we need a sort of state-imposed list of religious rules. Like we need to, to really, you know, shape the state according to some religious doctrine. Um, and I actually think that the vision of the founders is right in the middle of those two things. And this is what I end the book by kind of mm -hmm. arguing. Um, there is something new in the founding that is the kind of creation of that environment for, for enlightenment liberalism in its best form to thrive. Um, and it's theist. It's not that it, you know, it doesn't involve setting up any particular uh, faith, but it does mean that our founding ideals don't make any sense without a vision of a created universe that's ordered according to a creating mind. And so I, I think a lot of the times people like me who are more on the faith side of things can get very um, – we get ahead of ourselves. We start banging people over the head with the Nicene Creed. And what people are really up against is, well, is there such a thing as absolute truth at all? OK, well, if there is absolute truth, where does it come from? Who arbitrates it? Um, and I, I do think there's no escaping those questions for America. If you're going to be you know, living in America as founded, um, you have to actually be operating within a context that says, okay, maybe I, you know, don't have to be Catholic or don't have to be Protestant, but for any of these ideas to make sense, they have to take place within a, an ordered universe and ordered universes only come about uh, if they are ordered by somebody. So yeah, there is an argument for faith of that level in, in the book, but I don't think that, um, you know, I, I think that we, we're struggling with questions that are so basic and so primal that we almost don't understand that that's the question we're asking. We're really asking, is there a God? Can we believe? And I think the answer has to be yes. We talked uh, previously about the rise of uh, the use of multiverses within uh, the uh, video and and uh, and sort of all of all of TV and movies and the like as a storytelling device. How does that connect to the phenomenons that you are identifying in this book? Um, is the appeal of multiverse type approaches to telling stories these days, uh, does that have some origin in a discontent or a feeling of, of uh, a lack of strong uh, reality based uh, approaches to the way that we view our world? I think that's absolutely right. In fact, the multiverse uh, is in the center of the book. It's kind of the middle yes. section. Um, and that essay that you and I talked about in the Claremont Review of Books was in some ways, you know, derived from the, the core argument there. 
And that section is really about what we call the culture wars, uh, Mm -hmm. which is another thing that people will recognize from the news cycle every day. We seem to have some new scandal that outrages conservatives and makes liberals, you know, gleeful with transgression. And, um, you know, I talk in the book, for instance, about the Netflix uh, release of this movie Cuties, which is this French film that they splash these very sexually provocative images of young girls, you know, as part of their promotional material. Um, You know, what I begin by saying in that section is, okay, so maybe your typical understanding of the culture wars is the right wants morality, public morality, and the left wants, you know, transgression and a free for all. And maybe that was a sort of vaguely accurate description of the situation several decades ago. But when you come up against something like that cuties fight or, you know, the fight over representation, say, where we need to have people of certain, you know, colors and certain sexualities, you know, on screen, um, you're actually not up against libertines anymore. You're up against two competing moral visions of the world. Everybody since there has been literary criticism, everybody who thinks about art has known that art contains a moral vision of the world. There's no escaping it. All art that is great really depicts, you know, things as being not just happening, but as being good and bad, evil, painful, chaotic, joyous, and so forth. Um, And so what we're really doing in our culture wars is we're fighting over whose moral vision of the world is more accurate, beautiful, ennobling, and true. Um, And the left has a vision of the world, which is sexually permissive in every level, but incredibly locked down on the levels of, uh, you know, of ideology, of, uh, you know, of of speaking ill or of of, of joking about certain protected classes. Um, And they want that enshrined in art. Um, And the right has a, a moral vision of of the world, which I think is more accurate, uh, which is that, you know, that good and evil are real and exist and that tradition has has value and meaning. And so, you know, that's the fight that we're in. And in that fight, it's striking to me that one of our big, like, artistic creations is the multiverse, um, which is effectively an image of chaos. It effectively means that no actions have any consequences, um, that life is just matter, right, that we're just bouncing off of one another. Um, and I go into this in, in the book. But, you know, the answer to this really comes right out of the ancient tradition of literary criticism, which is the tradition of mimesis. Um, this whole thing arises with when when um, Dawkins invents the meme, which is the basically the kind of evolutionary model of all things, that everything just evolves and replicates over and over again. And so it makes sense that you get from there into this kind of multiverse universe. And my question is just, well, okay, if you're, if you're constantly copying copies of copies, um, where's the original? Is there an actual real life that we are trying to depict when we do art? Or are we just trying to kind of force a new vision of utopia into the world? And so it comes back again to this same debate, right? Is there something true and good that we're trying to depict in art? Or are we just trying to transform the world into some kind of, you know, vision of of post-sexual utopia? Um, And I think, you know, I I can tell which one makes better art. And I think that's an indicator of which one is more close closer to reality. So you may have anticipated this next question, uh, which is, what is your perspective on the development of of AI-based, AI-created art uh, as something that people are really leaning into in this moment? You know, you look at things like Mid Journey, for instance, where you can very quickly 
you know, in a matter of seconds, uh, put in a request and depending on how uh, well you refine your uh, request, uh, the the um, uh, AI can spit out something that is at least an approximation of what you've asked it to do. I've had some people tell me that this is really uh, an act of illustration as opposed to an act of, of creating art. Mm. Uh, but there are some people who uh, really believe that this has you know enormous promise uh, for the future. And uh, there are, are also artists who say that they use it uh, in order to find inspiration for works that they then create. Right. What do you think about that development? And is it uh, something that's a positive or is it also an again indicative of kind of the, the chaos of our current moment it's so interesting you know chat gpt and lensa got really big the last couple of months and uh it's it's funny to watch some of the things that i wrote about back when i wrote the book you know advance into greater fruition because that stuff is that all happened after i finished the book but it mm -hmm. really is i think uh it, 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 it not to say it proves me right, but it certainly shows that the things I'm talking about in the book are are the, the, you know at the center of our of our problems. Another thing that happened um, right after I, I wrote the book uh, is this guy. Uh, I think his name was Lemoyne or Lemoine. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. At, at Google, decided that Google's language learning software was alive and had a soul. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the most interesting little episode to come out of all of these developments because it really that is to put your finger on the question i'm not a tech pessimist in the sense that i think you know all of these developments are wholly bad um but i do think that when you build a machine that spits out human sounding words and then you say that that machine is human has a soul um you are demonstrating a fundamentally wrong idea about what people are. And that is because you have been trained out of that subjective sense, that valuing the subjective truth of the world, right? Um, that when you have an inner experience, when you see something is beautiful, not just you can spit out code that says that describes something is beautiful, but that qualitatively in your mind, you are having that experience. Um, that is when you are being human. And that's the whole point of everything. Why should it matter? I mean, let's imagine, for instance, that all human beings disappear from the earth tomorrow and Lensa AI keeps automatically spitting out beautiful things. Um, we know intuitively that that would be an empty and useless world. There, there would be no use for that beauty. So for me, the question is less about who's making, you know, what kind of uh, machine is making the art, but why does the art matter at all? And when you ask that question, you'll realize that it's because somebody is having an inner experience of the art that the machine can never reproduce. We're not, people don't understand, we're not even getting closer to machines having that experience. It's not like we're, oh, we're kind of giving them that experience and then they're going to really come online later, where all we're doing is making them better and better at imitating the behavior of something that has a human experience. Um, and since that's true, you know, we are going to, again, have to ask ourselves, like, what is a human being? Why does it matter that a human should exist in the world at all? Um, because the answer to all of these questions lies right in there. Um, and, and so, yeah, like, AI is going to get better and better. It's going to do some things that are scary and some things that are really beautiful. Um, but we are going to be the ones who are going to have to code the AI, purchase the products, right? We are going to make those decisions. And right now it seems to me like we don't know why we're just sort of making those decisions at random. And that's the problem. What we ought to be saying is, okay, we are 
humans, right? We are the thing that makes the world matter. Our machines are even, you know, even saying that a machine is good at something is based on a human subjective experience, right? The human reality of our perception of the world um, and preserving that uh, is just the same thing as saving the West because it's the same thing as, as preserving humanity. Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm not against AI per se, but I'm against literally idolizing it that is to say shaping a machine and then calling it a god or calling it something with a with a soul that that seems like a serious problem uh let's go out on this uh, we live in an era in which the level of medication uh for uh westerners has achieved new heights meaning mood altering uh medication of all manner of variety um you know, mostly for people who have difficulty coping with the world uh, and, uh, you know, are are uh, prescribed it by therapists or, you know, people like that. Um, it's an odd phenomenon, but it also seems to be something that is prevalent across society. And even if you can't uh, afford to uh, do it in, in an official medical sense, uh, then there are ways to get around that and do it in, you know, the, the, uh, less legal senses. Um, people just take these mood altering medications. Uh, you know, some of them are more dangerous than others and, uh, they kind of go through life in, in somewhat of a haze. I wonder what your thoughts are on why that's happening and what can change in order to get us off of these medications that some people basically take forever. They take it for their entire lives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, there's this Christmas story that, that Charles Dickens wrote called The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. And it's about 1848, I think he wrote it. So way before a lot of these drugs that we're talking about. But it, the main character in it is a chemist, which is to say he's a chemistry professor. So an expert in uh, these very questions, right, in, in tinkering with the chemical reactions in the body and in the outside world. And he's uh, he's tormented by the memory of his suffering. He has a betrayal in his past that he's agonizing over, and a ghost offers to erase the memory of his suffering. And of course, the Christmas story, the Christmas lesson is that when he takes that bargain, he's cut off from compassion. He's cut off from the the delight of, of music, which is so bound up with, you know, a melancholy and sorrow. And he just can't connect to anything human because he's lost his sense that, you know, we live in this in this veil of tears. Um, and I, I certainly think that the prevalence of those drugs. I mean, it's not that you might not have a certain disorder that would, you know, in certain cases, you might not have a disorder that would need medication. Um, but the extreme overprescription of those of those drugs speaks to an idea about humanity that is simply false, namely that we are made to configure our atoms and our neurons uh, in the most pleasurable possible way, that our purpose on this earth is to just have the nicest experience, um, and nice experiences just mean uh, feeling good. And to me, you know, this is obviously an unhuman and an unsatisfying way of life. And so the pessimist answer to your question is, well, people just eventually realize that this isn't going to bring them into the utopia that, that they hope. Um, the optimist answer to your question is for people like you and me to be, be saying to people who are suffering and struggling in these ways, you know, 
<laughs> how is it working out for you to dull that pain, to blunt that pain, right? Um, the, the one key that I talk about a lot in the book is, you know, people are doing this because they have nobody around them to say them nay, right? They don't, we, our communities are so thinned out in this country uh, a lot of the time that people don't have somebody around them to say, you know, this is, this is hurting you. Um, and instead of taking those drugs, um, you know, come sit by me, right? Come and, and share this sorrow with me. Um, and in that human connection, um, you'll go through the sorrow into a deeper sense of, you know, what you are and what the, what the world is. Cause that's redeeming. Right. Um, and so at the, I end the book by just saying actually spending time IRL with people um, is perhaps the single most underrated way of recovering uh, what's great about our society. The uh, human beings are not going to be erased. They're not going to be uploaded. They're not going to be, uh, you know, outmoded by some new machine. And so what we ought to be doing, right, is, is getting back together with one another um, and, and understanding that our sorrows are just like our joys, you know, part of the whole reason that, that we exist. And if there is no such reason, then um, there's, you know, there's no point to it all anyway. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do think that recovering a sense that your, your sorrow is not the, is not a failure uh, and doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's something that is, you know, built into you because it's part of your capacity to experience the world as a human being uh, who knows love and who knows joy. Uh, that's, that's the point of it all. Thank you so much, Spencer, for, for taking the time to join me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. I want to talk for a moment about uh, a number of different uh, things that I think are front of mind for me at the moment, given uh, the fact that I'm, uh, again, uh, you know, a new father of a newborn, someone who is trying to you know, uh, deal with the challenges of, of being a father in the modern era where there are a lot of demands on you and uh, where you have to, you know, deal with um, a lot of different things related to balancing work, life, home, and the more. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, really challenging about this moment when it comes to fatherhood and singleness in American society is that unfortunately we have a real attitude of degradation when it comes to support offered by communities that have traditionally done a lot to help maintain the kind of balance and the kind of, of healthy home life that we saw historically. Obviously, you know, in the past, the uh, arrival of a, a new baby was something that was a family affair that was viewed as being, uh, you know, really, you know, combining all the different generations to help uh, raise the newborn along with, you know, those family members and helping uh, the mother recover. In this day and age, though, that's just not true of a lot of families. It's particularly not true of those who have to deal with the challenge of expensive childcare and the like particularly those within the middle class. One of the oddities of American life is that you have sort of the wealthy class that is able to afford paid, you know, live in or constant childcare, near constant. Uh, and then you have the lower class folks who lean still on grandma and grandpa and, and those to come over and change diapers and the like. But for a lot of middle-class Americans, you know, that's just not true. They don't have the kind of resources uh, that would be necessary in order to pay people to do these jobs. Um, they can't really trust the kind of teenage babysitter that they'll trust in a few years to watch their toddlers and young children. 
But at the same time, many of them often live away from their families. They don't have the kind of, of family unit around them that traditionally uh, people had historically. And because of this, there's a lot of different challenges going on there that government has stepped in to fill in various ways. We've seen all of the different uh, recommendations from various folks as it relates to uh, the mandatory family leave policy, you know, government funding for these types of things, subsidization of uh, child care uh, and the like. But unfortunately, I think that we really do live in an era in which the kind of, of family unit behavior, the kind of support that is necessary for so many people to be able to have confidence about taking care of young ones is really absent for far too many, uh, you know, who live within the constant, you know, uh, uh, tread of modern society and have, you know, environments where, you know, they may get two weeks off, they may get four weeks off, but that's really, you know, not enough to get you past that certain point where you're going to be able to actually function in terms of a household, whether it's because of sleep or caring for others, uh, whether it's dealing with the, the challenges of, you know, having people who are under the weather or sick, there's just not the natural uh, type of support system that we had historically here in America and through most of the world. This is something that I think is, is frankly too big of a problem for government to solve. It's not something that we can really deal with in that direction. And to me, it reminds me a lot of the kind of approach that the church has had and uh, religious communities, but I'll you know, specifically focus in on Christian communities in America where those church-based uh, kind of support systems that used to happen uh, really don't exist anymore to the same degree. Uh, you might get a couple casseroles here and there. That's the kind of thing that I think a lot of folks, you know, experience. But then the, things are really forgotten. You don't have the kind of uh, engagement and help uh, that people might naturally want to see. And while there are plenty of people who are happy to put money behind uh, child care via crisis pregnancy centers or things like that, for your average family that is dealing with, you know, a couple of kids and uh, the challenges that come necessarily with having a new arrival in the household, there's less of that engagement than we would like to see. And this is of a piece, frankly, with the nature of the church's relationship with American citizens generally. As the church has declined in terms of being a center of American households and towns and cities across America, it has also become uh, something that is far less present in terms of helping those who are most in need within society. In fact, they've become f viewed as far more judgmental entities. And a lot of the leftist media likes to frame this uh, through the uh, lens of the battle over gay marriage uh, and the idea that, oh, these institutions are homophobic or something like that. I think largely you'll see that that's actually untrue in terms of the degradation of these entities within our community life. The simpler fact is that fewer people started to go when they didn't feel the social pressure to go to church. They didn't feel the social pressure to be part of any kind of religious body, and they turned away from it gradually uh, over time because they felt like you know they could get along just as well without it, and they didn't need that kind of everyday presence in their life, uh, certainly not every week. You have a lot of people who've turned into Christmas and Easter Christians over the last couple of years, particularly driven by the pandemic. However, one of the things that I do think that is lost along with that is regardless of whether you are of the opinion that this is a, you know, a spiritual necessity in terms of engagement uh, and of, of developing faith communities, guiding young children and the like, uh, you know, what else is lost is the kind of bonds that can happen 
uh, within a community uh, where people are able to help each other and to uh, lean on each other through moments of crisis and, and periods of need. Instead, you have a system now where people are, frankly, far more atomized, where government is anticipated as being the entity that's going to come in and help you out in all of these different challenging areas, regardless of, of uh, the necessity that you have, whether it's something as, as immediate, let's say, as medical need, or whether it's food, whether it's uh, help, whether it's donations of, of uh, clothes or of uh, support systems of, of various tools, all the various tools that you need in order to deal with a young one, uh, bottles and, and cribs and bassinets and sheets and all the like you are less likely to have that kind of, of church-based presence in your life if you're a middle-class or upper-class citizen in America. You simply don't uh, turn to those types of entities anymore. And even if you did, a lot of them wouldn't really have guidance for you about where to go. So I think that that's something that's deeply concerning about America, but it's also something that unfortunately none of the political actors who are deeply engaged in the idea that Americans need to be getting married more, that they need to be having more kids, uh, the types of people who have uh, you know gone back into a kind of 90s social conservatism that has more in common with uh, Rick Santorum of that era, let's say, than, than people who were you know uh, totally dedicated on the abortion issue or something like that. It, it is not something that you know has the same level of priorities. Instead, it's about family formation. Um, it's about guidance. It's you know anti-porn. It's uh, you know pro uh, support of you know lots of of young uh, women in particular when it comes to mental health. And it's very concerned about the fact that lots of uh, young women are not dating. That they're not engaging in family formation at a young enough age in order to have a number of children. I share the concerns of a lot of these people, but I also think that unfortunately they're turning to this governmental solution uh, that isn't really going to make that big of a difference. We've seen across the world a number of different countries who've tried to engage in this type of behavior, tried to, trying to roll back and reverse the trends of, of modern society away from family formation, away from having a lot of children. And it's really been something that has disappointed uh, time and time again. There are very few examples that you can point to where uh, things were able to reverse or, or get back to a replacement level. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of these different groups have failed to grapple with, uh, that the problems may be too big for something like a government program uh, or you know a shift to a nationalist, populist, so socially conservative family formation uh, element of this uh, is really going to make all that much of a difference. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to the Ben Dominich uh, podcast, and I'm so happy, as always, to have you subscribed to this. I hope that you will share it around with your friends. We'll be back with more soon to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.